0: a conversation-based podcast with philosophers working on nature and the environment. I'm
1: Claire. And I'm Andrea. We're your hosts. On each episode, we'll talk with an author or authors about a book or paper of theirs. This podcast is an excuse for us to talk with people whose work we find interesting. We both have backgrounds in environmental philosophy, and we wanted to bring this work to a broader audience through a podcast. Our first conversation is with Christopher Preston, professor of philosophy at the University of Montana. We'll talk with him about his recent book, The Synthetic Age, Outdesigning Evolution, Resurrecting Species, and Reengineering Our World, out this year from the MIT Press. But first, because this is the inaugural episode of Earth to Philosophy, let's introduce environmental philosophy as a topic, as some of our listeners may not be entirely familiar with it.
0: Environmental philosophy is a branch of philosophy that deals with how humans interact with and understand the physical environment and non-human nature. Environmental philosophers ask questions about what nature is, what makes it valuable, how humans relate to it, and how we should live in it.
1: It's a broad discipline, and we'll speak with people doing work on all kinds of environmental issues and questions. But you don't need to be familiar with the topics or have specialist knowledge in philosophy to listen. Of course, if the discussions interest you, you can always find links to what we've read on our webpage, www.earthtophilosophy.com. Okay, now to the interview.
2: And that's what I worry about, is that humanity is sleeping through the most important transition in planetary history.
1: For our inaugural conversation, we're interviewing Christopher Preston, Professor of Philosophy and Research Fellow in the Mansfield Center's Program on Ethics and Public Affairs at the University of Montana. We'll be talking about Christopher's most recent book, The Synthetic Age, Outdesigning Evolution Resurrecting Species and Reengineering Our World, which was published this year in two thousand eighteen by the MIT Press. Christopher also writes a blog called The Plasticine Nature Version 2.0, and Christopher was my um, master's supervisor. So I know him. I've known him for several years, and I know him quite well. Okay.
0: Well, hello then, Christopher. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to our first podcast. <laughs> Pleasure um, to be here. Yeah. Do you want to give a bit of a rundown of the book, or shall I?
2: Why, why don't you do that?
0: Okay. So um, the book, as mentioned, is called The Synthetic Age. Um, so over the course of 11 chapters, it covers a series of what Christopher might call anthropocene technologies, ranging from resurrection ecology to climate engineering to synthetic biology. These technologies are the ways in which engineers and other, um, and others are remaking the earth, Not in superficial ways, but in ways that tinker with the basic functions or building blocks of the Earth. So Christopher sees us as positioned in a moment of transition where we need to be thinking more deeply and clearly about the possibilities that these technologies pose. His account is highly accessible and he gives fair overview of both sides, both the benefits and risks of the technologies that he discusses. If you could tell us a little bit about what your aims were in writing this book, um, in particular for us, we're interested in who, who you had in mind as your as your readers.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this topic of the Anthropocene bursts into the academic world. It started capturing people's attention, and in environmental ethics, it, it attracted a lot of attention because in environmental ethics, we're broadly speaking concerned about the natural world and what's happening to it, and The Anthropocene suggests that the natural world is going through a dramatic kind of change. So nature that was will never be the same again in the future. And so that's obviously a concern to to people who who, um, write and think about the environment. But it occurs to me pretty quickly that the word Anthropocene was the wrong word because all it really seemed to designate was the moment at which we suddenly became aware that the whole planet was impacted. So, you know, that impact might be climate change, it might be species extinction, it might be uh, pollutants, pesticides in the Arctic ice, and that there came this moment when we suddenly realized that there was nothing that escaped that impact. Now, that is a moment to recognize, but what I thought was that this is not a moment to celebrate our impact by naming a whole geological epoch in our honor. So what I wanted to do was um, say something more about this moment, something more about where we're heading from this moment or where potentially things might go. And I wanted to put this out uh, in a way that anybody who has a a broad interest in science, a broad interest in environment, uh, an interest in technology, I want to put out in such a way that this sort of person could grasp the magnitude of where we stood and get a sense of how things might change from here on forward, because everybody has a stake in how things might change from here on forward. I see this as a moment where there's a lot of decisions to be made, and these decisions need to be made publicly, in an open way, in an inclusive way. And so I saw my role as to make this moment in history as accessible as I could to as many people as I could.
1: Yeah, that's excellent, and it sort of leads into a question, some related questions about the Anthropocene that I had. You're sort of not using the name the Anthropocene, instead you're using the Plastocene or the Synthetic Age, and it seems like those are sort of interchangeable for your for this book and for your account of it. So. Do you see yourself using these terms and meaning a different thing or are these really just your names, like better names for the same realization or the same, like the Anthropocene, but called something more apt?
2: So I was attracted to what Donna Haraway said about the Anthropocene. She said it's a boundary event.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And she said, hopefully it will last for as short a time as possible. And so the way I've been thinking about it is that the Anthropocene is this moment. I call it the Anthropocene moment. It's the moment at which we recognize that our impacts are planetary in scale and in certain respects irreversible. So we take that Anthropocene moment and then we try and plot where things go from here. And where things go, one way they could go is into a into an entirely synthetic age. And you're right that synthetic age and plasticine, those terms are used interchangeably. They kind of mean the same thing. So one way we could go off this Anthropocene moment is into an entirely synthetic age. And in the book, I sometimes call that a full throttle plasticine, where you know you gun the engine, you, you don't look back, you just go as, as hard as you can in the synthetic direction. That's only one option though. You know, we could choose not to head as fast as that in that direction. We could choose to put the brakes on, uh, employ techniques like rewilding, a bunch of restoration techniques, perhaps even atmospheric restoration, uh, in which case this Anthropocene moment will be a moment where we slow down and you know we think about things like rewilding, we think about nature, we think about uh, ways to to make nature rich uh, in the time ahead so th- there's sort of an array of possibilities as we move past this Anthropocene moment into the future and, and I want a, as broad a possible de- debate as we can have about that range of possibilities.
1: That's great yeah. Um,
0: can I just ask on that so um, you do reference Stephen Vogel in the book who I, I read uh, thinking like a more pretty pretty inside out um, a couple years ago and so that's his book that was published in 2015, which argues that we always build nature no matter what we do. Um, so nothing we do is is unnatural. Every, every creature builds its environment. And so we need to, humans need to really be conscious of, of this fact and to build it um, responsibly and, and with humility. Um, so do you agree with that idea also that we can't not do anything? Like we can't decide to just not do anything. We have to decide in some way or other. And really, we're at the moment of deciding to do it in the full interventionist synthetic way, or to do it in some more um, or, organic—I don't know what the word would be. I can't say natural. I feel like the word natural <laughs> doesn't now. So, but but do you see what I mean? Like, you know, if you if you go in the opposite direction to the synthetic creation of the world, you're not not building. You're still building. You can't not. But um, but it's maybe I, I don't know what the word would be to describe that. But do you... Do you agree with the idea that we're still building and that's what we do and we can't not do that?
2: So we have to decide. I agree with that, that we have to decide. Like once you've seen that the planet is completely touched, once you know that uh, greenhouse gases have changed the atmosphere and that we're continuing to pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we have no choice but to make a decision about how to proceed. And sometimes I I refer it to being like when you find an injured animal on the side of the road, you know, you, you wish you hadn't found that injured animal. It would have been great if you'd just driven by and you hadn't seen it. But once you've seen it, you face a choice. You know, you can, you can choose to do nothing, in which case, you know, you have a sort of a, a callousness to you or you can choose to get involved. And I, I see our situation as being like that. Yes, now that we know that we've, we've transitioned through this anthropocene moment, we have to make a decision. Now, Stephen Vogel is an interesting person to bring into this discussion. Um, I've, I've seen him recently, spoken to him recently about this. And, you know, I said to him, I said, Stephen, your book doesn't use the word Anthropocene. The, the word doesn't appear in the book. But it seems like a lot of what you're saying applies to this Anthropocene moment or this Anthropocene time. And he sort of nodded and he said, yep, I like the idea of the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene works for me. Um <laughs> So I think that book's really wonderful because it it was, you know, written in 2015 and it's a fantastic companion to the Anthropocene discussion without actually mentioning the Anthropocene in the book. So uh, I think it's really sort of provocative in that regard. The place I don't agree with Vogel uh, and the place I think he's got things slightly wrong is he uses the argument that, that you just mentioned, Claire, um, that, well, he says, you know, humans are natural, so, you know, in some sense, everything we do is natural. So it's very un to separate us from the rest of the world, and, and we really just need to think about how we're going to build the world rather than try and uh, maintain some distinction between the natural and the cultural or the natural and the synthetic. I don't agree with Vogel that that debate is over, we've read Darwin, we've got to consider everything we do as natural. And let me give you one of the the arguments why I don't agree with that. One of the arguments is, is simply, it's a practical, pragmatic argument, which is to say that the whole of the environmental movement for as long as the environmental movement has been in place, and you can date that as as long or as short as you like, but let's just date it from 1970, the first Earth Day, just for the sake of convenience. So 48 years, coming up on 50 years or so. The whole of that environmental movement has been about the human relationship to the world that is somehow, in some degree, outside of humanity. So the environmental movement has been about what is the proper relationship of humans in all their diverse shapes and forms to the natural world? So if you just if you make the Vogel move and you just say oh I read Darwin you know humans are natural too, then you're basically saying all of that 48 years of environmentalism either was mistaken from the beginning or it's completely useless now, and I think that's wrong. Uh, I think it's wrong to suggest that there's nothing substantial anymore in talking about a world that exists outside of human management, human, human design, human desire. A long answer, but um, you know, I, I buy into a good portion of what Vogel says while um, rejecting a, a tiny portion of it.
0: I think that's also because really we in our experience of being out in the world and experiencing nature we we do have these moments of experiencing it as as being this separate thing even if it's not historically correct even if we or even if it's not metaphysically correct or in whatever way when you're when you're out walking in a forest and you see a bird of prey you think of it as this other thing and belonging to this natural world that you are in some way separate of or separate from or that you're trying to feel more part of but there's always that kind of experience there so you can intellectually you can argue that we are part of it and that everything we do is as natural as everything the bird does but there's always that feeling that there's some distinction and I think maybe we're just culturally conditioned to feel that I'm not really sure but it feels I certainly feel that and I'm sure a lot of people do feel that and that's the kind of inescapable fact as well which also drives so much environmentalism that feeling of protecting that thing that that feels other from you
2: Yeah, there's sort of this inescapable phenomenology of it, right? Where, you know, that's sort of how the experience happens. To me, it's analogous to the experience of other people. You know, you you experience other people in, in a way in which those other people are, to some extent, different from you or other from you. Of course, you experience them as being similar. You know, like, we're part of the same species. You know, we have some of the same biological, physiological needs. So, of course, you know, it's ridiculous to say that, you know, when we sit here having this conversation, it's ridiculous to say that, well, I'm completely separate and completely, you know, distant from you both, that, you know, there's nothing that, that we share in common at all. Well, we share a substantial amount in common. You know, we're, we're all homo sapiens sapiens. We all need clean air. We all need clean water. So we share a substantial amount. However, there's an important way in which we are other. Uh, and and to me that's analogous to the experience of the natural world. A human shares a substantial amount with uh, a black bear, for example, which I saw yesterday on my bike ride in the rattlesnake. <laughs> there's a lot that we have that's in common. But there is also this substantial way in which that bear is other to me. That meadow in which the bear was standing is other to me that um, hawk flying overhead is other to me. Uh, And I I think, you know, when people like Vogel say, oh, we've read Darwin, you know, let's not imagine that humans and nature are separate. I I just find that um, sort of, I find that to be an exaggeration. And given the context of environmentalism, which has been very much embedded in this account where there is a way that you can distinguish a human world from a natural world, in the context of that sort of environmentalism, I think that kind of rejection of any separation is a a little unhelpful.
1: One of the distinctive things about the book is that at the beginning, you give a list of key figures, and you give the names and the birth and some death dates, if they're dead already, of prominent people who you associate with the synthetic age. But your list doesn't include any dates of discoveries, of inventions, or historic firsts, or like perhaps you might have included, I believe it's the ibex that was the first animal to be resurrected. I don't think I've ever seen a even a sort of more popular philosophy book that is so focused on individual actors. So I'm curious why you decided to, first of all, name them in this cast of characters, and also focus on them very biographically throughout your account, um, and why maybe not also include important dates or important Uh, milestones that might have involved non-humans?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I didn't actually put a lot of thought into that. It was a recommendation by my agent. Huh, okay. Who just worked with a book that had a list of characters in it. Um, And I just thought, oh yeah, that's interesting. These are not just ideas. These are actual people who invented things or built things or thought about things in a certain way. Um, In in a way, it would have been more interesting to put in important dates. Uh, I, I hadn't really thought about that until you mentioned it. One reason perhaps to avoid that is I'm, I'm a little loose about when this Anthropocene moment is, when the synthetic age begins, and I don't think I would want to be too tight about it um, because it'll always be something who will say, well, what about this? And um, so, what, one example, when I gave the the sort of la- the book launch event, which was a book reading in Boston. David Keith came and gave the introduction, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, "Why didn't you think about the nitrogen cycle as the beginning of the synthetic age? You know, where we went in there and disrupted a global chemical cycle with full intention, though I would question whether that was intentional in the way that that I talk about intention in the book. But you know, it is a case where." the synthetic age might be thought of as beginning sooner. So I didn't want to get into a bunch of battles with people about when the synthetic age potentially begins or how, how long the Anthropocene moment is or how much time we actually have until it's too late to make these decisions. That that I think would, be, would have been one of the perils of putting dates in. But yeah, you're a good, you, you asked a good question there, you know, why the people and not the events? And I think, uh, In general, I wanted to make it concrete and make it real, but, uh, you know, perhaps there would have been other ways to do that with a, a sort of opening list of important times or important events.
1: I have a second question that's sort of related. The list of the sort of star scientists or these important actors seems sort of at odds with your underlying suggestion that the book makes that these decisions need to be made democratically and publicly. And I wonder how, I mean, of course they don't have to be mutually exclusive, but I wonder how you can, like, could you explain or could you talk about how to situate these kinds of, um, like, biographies of these sort of larger-than-life people in some cases, like Craig Venter and George Church and these kinds of thinkers and innovators, how we should be responding to them as individuals when maybe the work that isn't happening yet is more democratic.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a really interesting point. I mean, I would suggest it's it's not at odds with the overall message of the book. You know, the overall message of the book is that this stuff is being decided by people, a limited number of people, without a massive amount of public input. And uh, my intention actually was not to say, here are the people. <laughs> this is the list of 25. You know, that was not what I was planning. But it, in a way, that is part of the message of the book, that... You know, synthetic biology is being pushed by a handful of people. As you know, climate engineering, uh, there's a few people that have an extraordinary influence on the discourse here. So um, let's start looking at these not as technologies that will inevitably be developed at the hands of this limited number of people. Let's look at these as public decisions about what sort of world to choose. Now, of course, I've been asked this at, at various book reading, various events. How do you do that? Like, how do you make these public decisions? You know, do you want a seven and a half billion big table that we'll all sit around and discuss? And and it's not really like I have a plan for how to make these decisions public. Um, But I think a good step along the way is to multiply rapidly the amount of people who think this is serious business, you know, multiply rapidly the amount of people who think, There is a lot at stake and there are big decisions to be made here. And, you know, hopefully that can sort of generate some noise uh, and get people involved who otherwise would be asleep. And and that's what I worry about is that humanity is sleeping through the most important transition in planetary history. I'll say that again. The most important (laughs) transition in planetary history where one species is about to choose how to shape the formative processes of the planet. I don't want us to sleep through that.
1: Yeah, you sort of preempted the next question that we had, which is if you have anything in mind regarding these kinds of things. But maybe a more pessimistic question before we get to that, which is just a real pessimist would worry that we maybe don't ever, in any kinds of moments of transition, have the clarity that we really need to steer these moments, of course, we're talking about like technological changes that we can author, but you still might be worried that it's only after decisions are made or after only ever historically can we look back and really truly understand that something is momentous or what the clear action should have been. Do you share that worry?
2: Legitimate point. You know, there's never enough information. There's never enough people involved. There's never enough knowledge about what's going on to really be able to say this is the moment that we all need to be focused. You know, we've got to be on our game. I, I agree. There's never enough information for that to happen. So what do you do? You give up? You just say, "All right, have at it. You know, let's just watch this stuff happen and see what kind of shit comes our way." You, do you give up or do you say, do, "Do you, you know, dig in and say this is big?" This is important. If you don't know about it, know about it. If, if you don't have enough information, get more information. I mean, I, and I think this is a question for, for the three of us sitting here. You know, this is what we do, right? You know, we do philosophy, we do ethics, we do, we do it in a way that we hope is going to affect policy. So what other choice do we have but to speak and write and urge things? You know, to, to sort of push for more information, more knowledge. Like, what other choice do we have but that?
1: I think that's that's a really nice point. Sorry, my neighbor is drilling next door. Saw the time. if you hear a noise, that's what that noise is. I can't <laughs> hear.
2: I can't hear the drilling. So. Okay. Yeah. I'm
1: sure it's coming through the recording. Okay, we, we need to come back to the political question, but I I I want to ask about this idea of the like what the role of the philosopher is here. I mean, in this book, you're writing for a lay audience. And I think that, so at least part of the, if I take your actions seriously, I would say part of the role that you think environmental philosophers or philosophers in general should be taking is engaging in public philosophy in a, in some kind of way. Like you've just said, not allowing people to sleep through this, or at least drawing attention to the magnitude of these questions. But what, is that all? Is that Is there more that environmental philosophy and environmental philosophers need to be doing in an an ideal sense to respond to these questions? And maybe a related question is, in this book, you don't really argue for any kinds of hard limits on these technologies, and it seems like you're really trying to open the field for a kind of democratic conversation. Do you see a point where you, as a philosopher and as a public figure, will sort of intervene and say where you think these limits might be. Do you think you know that yet? Or do you think that's something that you're also in the process of discussing or having these conversations and you'll come to that at some point? Or do do you see yourself as kind of a, yeah, I don't know, a mediator or um, someone who's trying to bring these questions up rather than um, take a, yeah, take a strong stance, articulate a strong stance.
2: So, I, I would really get myself in trouble if I started saying, well, environmental philosophers should do this, and environmental mm-hmm. philosophers should do that. <laughs> environmental philosophers should do what they want to do, you know? And there's some people who will want to work on very sort of technical questions and analytic ethics, mm-hmm. and that's great. You know, do good work there. Please do. Uh, there's environmental philosophers who will want to be <laughs> very political and activist, and there's environmental philosophers who will want to be sort of very public and bring you know, try and bring messages to wider audiences. And and you know, I think that's the that's what I'm trying to do right now is I'm just trying to be a little more public about what I do. Because I love what I do. You know, I find it interesting. And part of why I wrote the book is that I you know, I was working on these technologies, in synthetic biology, climate engineering, assisted migration, all this this kind of stuff within the academic realm. And I thought this stuff is interesting. You know, this is really good. <laughs> Good shit, you know I sh- more people <laughs> should be reading about this yeah. so I thought maybe I can translate this a little bit to show people how interesting environmental philosophy is. Now you know you ask a, a more poignant political question, can an environmental philosopher say no you know this is we we mustn't go this route. I think the uh, the spice project in the UK was an interesting example where the the research councils convened a panel of ethicists and social scientists to look at the SPICE experiment as to you know, whether it was ethically sound to go ahead with testing you know a stratospheric, a potential stratospheric aerosol deployment. And the ethicists and social scientists kind of weighed in and said, you know, it's a little sketchy what they're planning to do right now, given the, you know, the issues about patents for the technology and, and just the, the way this technology was going towards this field test in the UK. And, and in that case, the, the ethicists and the social scientists weighed in in such a way that had a, a real effect on the fact that that test was, in the end, canceled or postponed. So I think there are cases where ethicists will and should draw a line. But I, I don't think that's sort of the priority right now. You know, I don't think, you know, I, I, the book is not written to say, you know, here's, Here's a dozen or so technologies and you know here's a, a dozen or so lines that need to be drawn. Yeah, I'm not interested in doing that. Uh, uh, you know a lot of the people I mean one of the things I think that, that I learned in, in the writing of the book and in the research that went into the writing of the book is that there's a lot of really good people on both sides of these debates. you know a lot of people that, that have strong humanitarian and environmental intentions on the anti-technology side and on the pro-technology side. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's been awkward for me about being a little more public about my work is I potentially get in fights with people I don't want to get in fights with. (laughs) And, you know, it's really quite uncomfortable. And so I think that's something, when when you decide to become more public with your writing, you have to be conscious about that, that you're opening yourself up to battles with people who you know, you might have more in common with them than it it seems when you publish a blog post or, you know, when you comment on something. So I, I, I think it is important to be more public if that's the type of environmental policy you want to do. But when you become more public, you have to do it in a very careful way and not just sort of wade in there, kind of all guns blazing and, <laughs> you know, offending people at every turn. Um, and that's very, very tricky territory.
1: Do you think you've gotten more response with reception about the book or through the blog or is it a combination of both
2: I think it's kind of a combination of both I mean uh, you probably know I I started the blog and I'm using the blog as a vehicle for the book you know like the two are kind of coming together so I I wouldn't say I mean it's early days right now I wouldn't say either one of them is having more influence than the other or I'm still kind of a wait and see kind of stage
0: yeah Uh, can, can I just wanted to jump back a bit to the topic of democratic decision making so I recognize as you said you don't have a plan for how this is supposed to happen Um, but I do wonder as well if you have the sense that there are differences in the scale of the democratic decision making that needs to go into some of these things of course like you know we've got global treaties around various things and you know one around climate change now and Obviously, some of these things require that much more global perspective on them than others. So assisted migration in a particular ecosystem is not does not require necessarily the same level of global um, intervention democratically as um, geoengineering does. So I just wondered also maybe what thoughts you had on that and uh, generally also our ability as a species <laughs> to make decisions together based on how, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement is going, and the progress we're making around that, and uh, or lack of progress, and and whether you have sort of hope that we could manage to create other global forums where we can discuss things like um, geoengineering and or you know uh, engineering of uh, human genes and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. So obviously, it will be a matter of scale. You know, you're correct to point out solar radiation management for the whole planet is different from, you know, relocating a species in a particular ecoregion or something like that. You know, one, I think one interesting example of that sort of discussion is Kevin Esvelt's work on gene drives and uh, the idea of eradicating a mouse uh, off an island because the mouse is a vector for Lyme disease. So you use a gene drive to eradicate this mouse. I think I've got the details right there. and you know. The advantage was it's an island and there's a limited number of people that live on the island and you can ask them, you know, you can say, do you do you want us to do this? And so the decision making is on a much smaller scale there. Um, but then in November of last year, Esfeldt published a, a piece in the uh, New York Times after he and some colleagues had done a study modeling the spread of this gene drive and, and the potential for this gene drive to hit populations beyond the population that they were targeting. And what was, you know, I'm not an expert in this area, so I, I, I want to apologize if I get some of the details wrong, but what was striking about the piece that Esfeld published in the New York Times is he said, you know, I was wrong and I've wasted five years of my life on something that I now realize it would be irresponsible to develop, at least in its current form. You know, there's ways to adjust gene drives so that they couldn't spread in the problematic way that this paper on the modeling revealed they had the potential to spread so <laughs> if, if just to sort of to say that again that the modeling revealed that this gene drive could be a lot further reaching could escape control much more easily than they had thought that's what the modeling revealed uh and so you know s felt said i was thinking we could handle this in a local regional way, what the modeling shows is there's no way it could be handled in a local regional way. So I need to back away from what I'm doing and need to be a little more cautious about it. So there is a potential for some decision making to be more more regional, but we need to be cautious about being sure that decision making is more regional and not just imagining that the decision making is regional because we want that to be the answer because we're sort of overly optimistic that oh don't worry this is only going to affect x number of people or y geography uh because i think there's always a temptation to say don't worry we got this covered it's not a big deal and to push ahead when in fact it could be a big deal
0: yeah and and also as you say it's not it's not just but it's not it's not just about how widespread effects of something could become i mean of course that's part of it but it's also about deciding maybe before anything is done whether whether a thing is something we as a species want to do. So do, do we want to be, you know, the extincting mammoths? Like is that something that we should be doing? So it's even before even sometimes before you get to the question of what are the potential impacts of doing this, it's it's a much more fundamental question of what what lines do we want to cross?
2: Esfeld said, I mean, it's it's really interesting to to track this discussion a little bit. Esfeld said about his work on gene drives, he says, the only way to develop a technology that has the potential to eradicate a form of life from the earth, the only way to develop such technology is with full transparency and full public input at all moments. And this is appalling to many of his colleagues in the field, you know, the idea that you know, your results have to be publicly accessible at all times uh, and that, you know, you need to be given the go ahead at every step of the way. I mean, obviously this creates a very challenging situation in which uh, scientists can be made to work, but that was what Svelts recognized about the, the character of the technology. The character of the technology is such that we can't do scientific research in the way we've traditionally done it. There is too much at stake. This is a different kind of technology. And so we need a different kind of impact from the public. And that's that's really kind of a, a message that's very close to the message in the book in the synthetic age. These are different sorts of changes. You know, this is not, you know, this is not the iPhone. Uh, this is not, you know, a, a particular um, seed or, or something like that. This is a whole different way of relating to the earth. And so we need a different type of process here in order to make sure. That, that we're creating the kind of earth um, that is desirable for people.
0: And I think the risk is without that, you, you, you really risk maybe something starting to happen and then people get used to the fact that, that these synthetic technologies are starting to, you know, become more widespread and more normal in different fields. And then there's less challenge. Like, I think you're really right to pinpoint this. Like, this is a really crucial moment, like, where we have to be very attentive to what's going on and not let certain things become just part of what we do. And, you know, another secretive thing or something that we don't know enough about, it needs to be, it needs to be approached in, in a different way. Because I think about things like, I mean, I, I don't have any problem with, genetically modified crops per se but you know with with some people now having this reaction of oh my god how can we you know we shouldn't have them they 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 could be dangerous and so on but then there's also once you've crossed into that and they start becoming more widespread and you realize how many crops are actually genetically modified like it's very hard to then turn it back so i think yeah you're right to pinpoint this is like this is a crucial decision making moment
2: yeah there's like a constant you know in ecology it's called shifting baseline syndrome and that's constantly happening with the technologies that are uh, embedded in, in, in our lives, you know, you get you have sort of a shifting baseline. And, and so part of what the book is, is, is taking advantage of this rhetorical opportunity. So everyone's talking about the Anthropocene, everybody's saying this is a big deal. So let's take that opportunity. Let's take this Anthropocene moment, create a conversation that might otherwise not have happened and Jedediah Purdy, the legal scholar, was on campus here in Missoula a year ago, and, and, you know, he said, do you want a future that you end up with through, quote, drift and inadvertence, end quote, or do you want a future that is the product of deliberate choice? I think the answer is obvious, you know, who wants a future that is, that you end up with through drift and inadvertence? But
1: you met with a lot of the the kind of innovators or engineers associated with the technologies that you talk about. And you don't have to convince them, I assume, of the magnitude of of what they're doing and of the changes that they might be um, inaugurating. Yeah, I mean, what you've just said about other scientists not agreeing that these decisions or these processes should be made transparent. What was your experience in the, the conversations you had do you, did you find them sort of receptive to the to the suggestion to like the, the points that you're making in the book about the need for democratic decision making about them? And I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that they would share the worry that you that we would end up in a future through drift and inadvertence, right? It seems like they they think that we'll have this future because it's really exciting and we'll charge ahead into it. So. I, I mean, I, I, I see both points, and I'm certainly sympathetic to Purdy's point. And I'm, I, for one, I guess, am more worried about that, that we'll not take these decisions up. Because I think you've had a, a rare opportunity to be speaking with some of the figureheads or some of the, um, these, this cast of characters. You know these people or have met with them in many cases. So where did they stand on their work writ large?
2: I think it's very, it's very hard to generalize there, and I, you know, I wouldn't want to uh, attempt to generalize it. And I think, you know, as you know through your work in climate engineering, there's just a range of, there's a range of responses out there. You know, there's people involved in the technology who say this is a huge deal. I want everybody to be involved in this discussion, and there's people out there who say, what's new here? This is just the same as we've been doing for two hundred years. And so it's not really possible to generalize. To get back to the issue of, you know, what is environmental philosophy's role in all of this, I I do think there is a role for people like us who have an interest in uh, science, technology, environment, and also have an interest in sort of ethics and meaning and identity and and these sorts of things. I think we need to be there like little terriers, you know, like, yep, 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 yep. Kind of uh, just be involved, like put yourself into these environments, into these discussions, onto these websites, uh, onto these blogs, and just raise the questions. And uh, who knows, you know, the, the particular scientists you interact with, who knows if they will be philosophically inclined and recognize these big questions or if they will be completely blind to the big questions. But I think there's an obligation. On, on people like you and me to bring those questions to people's attention and you know insert ourselves into these places that can, can be a little uncomfortable for us to go. you know It's much easier to go to a little philosophy gathering where you'll see all your friends and you know you're only going to get a certain set of questions and a certain set of responses. Um, but put ourselves into these slightly more awkward contexts where we are pushing people to address questions they might not normally address. I see that as an important part of what we should be doing.
1: Is there anything that we haven't asked that you would like to add?
2: I am interested in, I I didn't put it so much in this book, I just sort of put it between the lines Uh, and it's towards the end of the book it comes through a bit more strongly. But I'm interested in the role of wildness and rewilding in all of this because the Anthropocene has tended to be cast as a time of increased managerialism, increased power, increased capacity to intervene, increased potential for management. And that's fine, except where a certain wildness makes that intervening and that managing more risky. And so one of the things about Vogel's book, actually, that I think is really valuable, really important, is uh, chapter four, when he writes about the nature of artifacts and talks about the wildness that inhabits even the things that we build and design very carefully. I think a lot about wildness in the Anthropocene and how these things that we build, and so these will be devices in nanotechnology. They will be synthetic bacteria. They will be ecosystems that are redesigned and repopulated with de-extincted animals or animals we have relocated. They will be atmospheres that we try to recompose and rebalance. These are things that we're hoping to design and manage. And yet, what if Fogo is right that there is wildness remaining in all of these things? Where does that leave us in a synthetic age? And and to take wildness sort of beyond just wildness in the things we build? What if we interact with the world in a way that encourages this wildness? And so rewilding projects here are sort of the, the signature example. You know, what if we let landscapes return to non-human control, non-human management. What if we bring species back into places where they kind of uh, poke fun at us and surprise us as the wolves are doing in the Netherlands, for example. Um, I see a sort of rich territory here. And in a way, it's it's a territory where the environmentalism of old, the pre-anthropocene environmentalism, can meet the environmentalism of the synthetic age you know, th- this notion of wildness is something that comes out of the uh, former type of environmental thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think it can sort of bridge this Anthropocene moment and appear in whatever type of environmental thinking emerges over the next few decades. Because I think a new type of environmental thinking is emerging mm-hmm. and will continue to emerge over the next few decades. And I, I wonder what kind of bridging role wildness is going to play in kind of connecting these two types of environmentalism. So. I think there's lots of really exciting work to be done by environmental ethicists on that. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm kind of interested in being involved in those discussions.
0: Yeah, and that, that's... Um, for Vogel, that's also why humility is important, right? That, and that is the humility to recognise the wildness and that we don't have full and total control over mm-hmm. anything that we build, even if it's in some very minor way. Um, there's, there's still a gap between the intention or, or the building and then the end product. So so to be humble <laughs> in the face of this is crucial.
2: Yeah, we just we just had a graduate seminar on campus here, Issues in the Anthropocene, and we read Vogel's book. And this idea of the gap, you know, we there were several students in the class who every class they'd be saying, the gap,
0: the gap, the <laughs> gap, the gap.
2: <laughs> and I, do, I think it's important and it's kind of exciting, you know. We mustn't forget about wildness as we sort of move through this moment and start to more deliberately choose uh, for the future.
1: Yeah, that's a really nice way to leave it. So maybe we should just wrap up there. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time and talking about your book with us and for your patience in our first recording endeavor. <laughs> Thank you for the book. It was a very interesting Yeah, day. yeah, excellent.
2: Oh, sure, yeah. Glad you'd like to.
1: Thanks for listening to Earth to Philosophy. Our website, again, is www.earthtophilosophy.com. There you can find a link to Christopher's book and to his blog. Feel free to send us an email with thoughts or questions or topics or people you'd like us to cover.